A note to our listeners. This episode contains an extended, serious discussion on themes of sexual assault in Shakespeare's time in our own. If you're sensitive to these kinds of topics, sit this one out, and we'll hope you'll tune back in for our next regular episode. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our regularly scheduled programming with another Bardflies minisode. Today, another poem written during Shakespeare's self-quarantine during the London Plague of 1592 to 1594, The Tragic and Shocking Tale of Lucrece. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. James, is there anything we need to know about this poem before we talk about what happens in it? Not a ton, but I'll tell you what I know. So, Lucrece is also known by the title The Rape of Lucrece. My Pelican Shakespeare edition refers to it as the one-word title, but I've also seen it the other way. It was first published in 1594, which was the year after his first narrative poem, Venus and Adonis, appeared. Since the London theaters weren't reopened until May of 1594, following the plague outbreak, it seems pretty safe to assume that at least a good portion of the poem, if not all of it, was composed while the theaters were still closed. The poem follows the ancient Roman legend of the noblewoman Lucretia, whose death sparked the overthrow of the kings of Rome and led to the founding of the Roman Republic. But obviously, Shakespeare is putting his own spin on this legend in the same way that in Venus and Adonis, he's putting his own spin on the Ovid version of that story. To me, there are three pretty clear sections of the poem. And so, Will, if you'll allow me to jump into a plot summary here. Please do. All right. So... In the first section, a Roman army is besieging Ardea, some town to the north that is apparently in rebellion against Rome. At the siege, a group of Roman noblemen are engaging in some locker room talk, boasting about their wives. Among these men are Collatinus, who is referred to as Collatine throughout the poem, and Tarquinius, who is referred to Tarquin throughout the poem, who is the heir to the throne of Rome. Collatine speaks glowingly of the beauty and virtue of his wife, Lucrece. This piques Tarquin's jealousy. How has Collatine found a more beautiful and more virtuous wife than he, who will one day be king? Leaving Collatine and the rest of the men behind at Ardea, Tarquin departs camp and goes to Collatium, Collatine's country estate. He is greeted by Lucrece, who treats him with all the hospitality that one would expect from the most beautiful and virtuous woman of Rome in dealing with her prince. Tarquin sees that Collatine's description of his wife is true. If anything, he concludes that Collatine has undersold his wife's perfections. This activates a dark desire to possess Lucrece. After they all go to bed, Tarquin arises, deciding that he must satisfy his lust. He hesitates, and we follow a long internal monologue in which he debates the action he's contemplating. But ultimately, he decides to go through with it, goes to Lucrece's chamber, and forces himself on her at sword point. Pretty grim. Extremely, extremely grim. And and I have to say, there's some definite callbacks here to... The Venus and Adonis minisode, Will? I I mean, Mm. not only in terms of the fact that this is another narrative poem that was written when Shakespeare was presumably social distancing, but also just, you know, in the thematic content of the poem, right? Except Mm. this one feels like it's even more, you know, where maybe there was some ambiguity in that poem, or maybe it was, you know, this, this poem is much more violent and much darker, I think. Not yeah. not that that one's not dark, but this is yeah. worse. Yeah, the difference in Venus and Adonis 
is coercion and harassment, but sort of in an indirect fashion. This is uh, violent, direct. Yeah, it's violently coercive. It's uh, it's you know it's it's if anything. They're both horrifying. This is even more horrifying yeah. to some well, degree. Well, we look. We'll talk more about the end of the poem when we get to the end of the poem. But I think it's, you know, by way of example, in that poem or regarding that poem, we had a whole discussion about whether or not you could directly connect Venus's actions to Adonis's death, right? Whereas in this poem, one is clearly the consequence of the other. Right. Right. Well, on on that subject, I thought that reading this poem and particularly reading this long monologue of Tarquin's at the beginning, and boy, is it long. <laughs> it <laughs> goes on for a while. It sparked a something that I had thought about with Venus and Adonis that we didn't talk about that I thought maybe would be an obvious starting point for our discussion here, which is we didn't talk in Venus and Adonis about the... I don't know if interiority is quite the right word, but for lack of a better one, we'll roll with it. We didn't talk about the interiority of Venus and like whether or not she, whether or not her affections for Adonis were genuine or not. You know, we're not granted a lot of psychological insight in that poem in terms Mm -hmm. of being told exactly what people are thinking. Whereas this poem basically is structured as two very long internal monologues. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Tarquin's process and Shakespeare's portrayal of of his behavior, not only in terms of, or I guess in this context, in terms of how he arrives at the behavior that he engages in or the misbehavior mm. he engages in. So I, I guess I'll put it this way. Do you view them as by them I mean Tarquin and Venus as more similar or more different? uh, It's a tough question because at the end of the day, I think they're both engaged in despicable behavior. I think that the level of insight that you get into Tarquin's process makes him a little bit of a categorically different character in a sense. Venus is portrayed almost animalistically, you know, she's one track mind and you don't really get that glimpse into her own thought process and sort of what she's what she's thinking about until almost the end of the poem where she's lamenting Adonis's death at the hands of a wild boar. Tarquin he's uh, he's even more despicable in some ways because this monologue lays out how he knows what he wants to do is wrong. He knows it may bring about the ruin of everything, both Rome politically, himself personally, and, you know, to some degree that we can debate the sincerity of this since he goes ahead with it anyway, but also the ruin of Lucrece and, you know, his his relationships with, um, with her husband and, and others in Rome. So the fact that he goes ahead and does it anyway... And basically says that it's all about this desire that he can't control, but he lays out all the reasons to not do it, shows a level of self-awareness that makes it sociopathic. Right. There's no, uh, there's no ambiguity even within him, right? I think 
I think you could maybe say that Venus is not really aware of what she's doing, or mm-hmm. at least she's made a, a a case that is to herself convincing that she's not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tarquin is very cognizant of the moral character of his action, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess maybe the question that I'm struggling with here is. Is this a difference of category of or a difference of degree? And I think I would pretty definitely, <laughs> which I realize sounds does not sound definite at all. But I, I think I to me it's a difference of degree, not a difference of category. Mm. You know, I don't think that Venus's behavior is justifiable in an objective sense. You know, from an outside observer looking at it. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that what she's doing is wrong, but it is definitely not, it doesn't have quite the same level of unvarnished self-awareness. And malevolence to that point. I mean, he knows what he is doing is evil and in fact, more or less says it out loud when he's contemplating and after the fact. Well, he, yeah, I mean, he lays out the whole, you know, a whole set of arguments about why he shouldn't do it. And this was this was something that was interesting to me about it was that on the one hand he lays out all these arguments of why he shouldn't do it and then he basically says well I'm going to do it anyways and the the I'm going to do it anyways part is inflected with the projection that he doesn't have a choice, right? That he's being driven to it, that his desire is too strong. Mm. And yet I definitely got the feeling that he had already decided and he was sort of trying to build himself up to do it rather than that he was being that he was so taken by his desire that he couldn't help himself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does all read a little bit like an ex post facto rationalization on his part and that he went to the house with this in mind, more or less, maybe not fully developed in a sense, but he went and this was sort of a possibility almost from the start that only became closer to being realized by him being there. But there's something about him that strikes me as on this course almost from the jump, if not shortly after he arrives at the house, right? Yeah. And and there's an interesting thing there where his desire for possessing Lucrece is sparked by her husband's description of her as chaste and virtuous. You almost think that or wonder that if he had shown up and she had been willing I'm sure he probably would have pursued her anyway, even if she had been interested in him. But you kind of get the sense that he was going to charge ahead almost no matter what there. That's not, that's not yeah. terribly... Uh, if, I can, if I can just share a couple lines that I think really get to this, right? He says, he basically gives a prayer to the gods to help him do this. And then reflects on it and says, Quoth he, I must deflower, the powers to whom I pray abhor this fact... How can they then assist me in the act? Then love and fortune be my gods, my guide. My will is backed with resolution. Thoughts are but dreams till their effects be tried. The blackest sin is cleared with absolution. Against love's fire, fears, frost hath dissolution. The Mm -hmm. eye of heaven is out and misty night covers the shame that follows sweet delight. It seems like he, you know, he knows that the gods frown on what he's doing. And he he is deciding to stiffen up his own resolve in face of that. 
mm-hmm. because he knows that the gods will frown on this, right? Yes. Um, I, I think what I was uh, you know, thinking about earlier is that his interest is piqued by her virtuousness and the opportunity to quote unquote defile her virtuousness is kind of the appeal to him in some way, which actually makes it even more, you know, an even more um, evil act in a way. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about this for a minute, because it was something that I thought was a little bit ambiguous in the poem. And I'm, I've been struggling as I've thought about, which is right. So he on the one hand, it does feel like there is a clear element of jealousy and possessiveness and desire to dominate that is behind this right mm-hmm. in you know, starting with his reaction to Collatine's description. And, you know, and I think throughout his, throughout the period of time that he's at the house, right? It's it's talked about in, exactly as you say, right? His, because she is chaste and virtuous, he wants to possess her for some kind of, I mean, I don't really understand why, like it's not, it's not explained psychologically what the action is that's in his brain, like what that will satisfy for him. Nonetheless, that is a source of his desire. On the other hand, he does also seem to be driven by lust, right? He said, you know, when he's going to her chamber, Shakespeare describes him as, by reprobate desire, thus madly led the Roman lord marcheth to Lucrece's bed. So I guess I'm struggling to parse, you know, what is what. Is the lust a separate thing from the I'm describing it as jealousy. I don't know if jealousy is really the exact emotion. But is it a separate thing or does it derive from that thing? I think it derives from the thing itself because in some respects, right, I think it goes back to this idea that he wants something that is forbidden to him that is in the context of the poem uh, Lucrece belongs to to Colatine, right? And mm-hmm. In that sense, there is this element of, I think the desire comes from her being forbidden and comes from her being virtuous and faithful to her husband. That's sort of what I was thinking about earlier. I'm not sure that Lucrece would hold as much appeal or allure to Tarquin. That might not prevent him from pursuing her because he desires her uh, sexually, but it does change the lengths to which he's willing to go. Yeah, the operation of it seems to be that he wants to possess her, and in possessing her, he also shows his dominance over Collatine. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's it definitely gets to the idea that I think is talked about a lot in contemporary discourse, and that we talked about with Venus and Adonis, of rape or assault being driven by questions of power more than by questions of lust. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, so do you think that this then is, do you think that the portrayal of Tarquin is cutting against that sort of idea of the destructive power of lust that we talked about with Venus and Adonis? Or do you think it's complementary? Well, I think it's complementary in the sense that both of them ultimately lack the ability to truly empathize with the victim and sort of object of their desire, right? In that sense, I think that uh, 
there's some commonality, but I think Venus's is a lot closer to admiring Adonis's beauty in and of itself and pursuing it, uh, you know, and she's as portrayed as sort of a predator, but it's a predator in the context of like the natural world. And that's what she's meant to do. You know, she's the goddess of love. She's going to pursue people who are beautiful, whether right. or not her, they're her, interested. Her pursuit is in her pursuit is fundamentally about the pursuit of her own erotic pleasure. And the, the sort of the misbehavior in it is, is her disregard for Adonis's preference. Right. Whereas Tarquin's behavior is driven by his is more fundamentally driven by his desire for dominance. Yes, yeah. And I think you can track this with different types of crimes you see, you know, in our world today, which doesn't lessen necessarily the the severity of, you know, of any of those categories of crimes, but I think in the poems there are different kind of logics at work. And those can sometimes, I think, be mirrored by different situations that people face where they are being coerced or assaulted, but the contexts are slightly different, even if the end result is, you know, still despicable. In, in yeah, well, as, as we said, as we said before, right, it's their differences of, of degree, not of category. Yes, yeah, right? absolutely. Like they definitely belong grouped together or the nature of the crime is is sort of similar in some sense, but there are differences in the motivation and how the things come about in themselves. Right. So, Will, I think this is a an ideal or an obvious moment to switch to talking about the object of Tarquin's yeah. misbehavior, which is Lucrece. Mm-hmm. Can you guide us through the aftermath? Yeah, absolutely. So in the immediate aftermath of Lucrece's rape by Tarquin, Tarquin takes off and runs. Lucrece, in a wave of shame, fury, and despair searches her home for an implement to commit suicide with. Finding none, she laments her plight and writes a letter to Colatine asking him to come home immediately, but not specifying the tragedy that has just befallen her. She then wanders her home until she comes across a painting of Troy, the ancestral home, according to legend, of the people who had found Rome. The painting depicts the siege of Troy by the Greeks during the Trojan War. She focuses her anger on the figure of Helen, whose seduction and abduction eventually caused the war and Troy's downfall, and the figure of Sinon, a Trojan priest who encourages King Priam to bring the Greek's wooden horse into Troy. She ends up comparing Sinon to Tarquin, and she scratches him out of the painting. Colatine and his retinue arrive, and Lucrece reveals Tarquin's crime, after extracting promises from the men to avenge her. She then promptly kills herself with a knife. Grimmer and grimmer. In, in my estimation, well, I know you had a, I know you had some interest in this, in this long section about the Trojan War, which I will admit I found to be the most opaque section of the entire poem. Can you just talk for about two minutes about why that was interesting to you? Yeah, absolutely. So Lucrece is probably the most fascinating character in the poem to me in a lot of ways. Part of which comes from her reaction to being assaulted by Tarquin. She's furious, she's ashamed, and she's really struggling to find a way to express uh, how she feels in a way that seems very true to life based on everything that you can read and and see uh, in our world today. But she's struggling to find a way to, to capture exactly how she feels and how she understands what just happened to her. So when she stumbles across this painting, 
it does a couple of different things, both in the structure of the poem and for Lucrece personally. She is able to fixate her attention on the different figures in ways that relate to her situation, to Tarquin, and the situation of, of Rome more generally. So the first, her fixation on Helen. So Helen seduced and abducted by Paris of Troy, which was referred to historically her abduction in classical terms and the way it would have been understood in Shakespeare's time was the rape of Helen was the abduction of her to Troy by Paris. So in that sense, she's being paralleled and she sees Helen as somebody who's not chaste and not virtuous, unlike herself, and ends up causing a war that leads to the downfall of Troy. So she has these feelings of sort of hatred towards Helen. And then she looks at this figure of Sinon. And Sinon persuades King Priam to let the Greeks in. And the Greeks end up, of course, exiting the Trojan horse and sacking the city and driving the Trojans out. And it leads to the ruin of Troy and indirectly to the Trojans that survive, led by Aeneas, moving to the Italian peninsula and founding Rome, according to legend. So she looks at Sinon and she sees him as a despicable figure, like Tarquin, who gained access to her home under false pretenses, and, and sort of encourage her to let him in. But she also feels this sense of terrible guilt because in some sense, I think she also identifies herself with Sinon or with Priam in terms of letting Tarquin into her home in the first place. And so there's this horrible feeling that maybe she played some role in her own victimization and sort of what happened to her. But there's also this very clear sense that she is the wronged party right. and well, she's trying to disentangle these things, I think. I not to read contemporary discourse back into Shakespeare's 16th century writing, but there's definitely a sense of victim blaming that goes mm. on in this poem. Not, not on Shakespeare's part, to be clear, but on both on Tarquin's part, where he basically, after the act, blames Lucrece for what he's done to her. And also, as, as you're saying with Lucrece, who sort of at the same time that she talks about how no one will blame her, also nonetheless feels that she's done something wrong. Right. I mean, I think that there's a lot of internalized misogyny in the play in a number of the characters. And it's actually a pretty tremendous act of empathy on Shakespeare's part, without ascribing to him all of the ways we talk about these issues today. But it, it actually is a pretty tremendously empathetic feat of what he achieves by going into Lucrece's mind and trying to untangle these very complex emotions. And then I think this is the sort of second part of this painting, and I think will lead very naturally into our discussion of the poem's conclusion, is there's also a political subtext here where Lucrece sees Helen as somebody who helps bring her rape or abduction in the context of the Iliad and the history of Troy that brings about the fall of Troy and the collapse of the kingdom and where Lucrece's ancestors presumably came from uh, in the telling of this poem. Right. She sees her, what happens to her though, as a way of maybe writing the imbalances that exist in Rome and Tarquin's villainy and the villainy of you know the, the monarch that leads or the monarch in the air presumptive that lead Rome currently. So in some ways, she's reclaiming agency, and by breaking her silence, she is going to affect 
change, even if in some right. ways what happened to her is going to be instrumentalized by the men to achieve political power. It's also a measure or a means for her to achieve justice. Yeah, I uh, thought that Shakespeare did a pretty remarkable job turning her suicide into something that was heroic, not necessarily in its action, but in her, the way that she thought about her action. Yes. I feel like contemporary discussions of suicide are often flattened into one of either two camps in like a very unnuanced way, where on the one hand, you have this argument that, you know, this argument basically of depressed people who Mm. are like, suicide is heroic. I would do it if not for, you know, if not for the fact that I'm too much of a coward to do it. And, you know, good for people who are able to take that step. You you may uh, <laughs> you you may read some of my own history with depression into this reading, and then there's the opposite view, which is that suicide is a fundamentally cowardly act mm. by people who don't understand, or you know who who are too afraid of living and who don't understand what the damage they're causing to other people is. Mm. And you know, Shakespeare obviously has a more nuanced view of it than either of those extremes. What I really focused on or was was moved by in the way that he talks about Lucrece is, you know, Lucrece sees, and Will, feel free to chime in and tell mm-hmm. me if you disagree with me at any point, but Lucrece, Lucrece doesn't really think, like what, what Lucrece is afraid of and ashamed of is less the view that she's going to be seen as unchaste or unvirtuous or has av- or as having acted wrongly and more that she's afraid of people's pity mm. you know like she she seems to be really afraid of people or very aware that she that, that other people will view her as damaged and that you know that she had this horrible thing done to her and that will now become the way that people think about her rather than as Mm. The noble Lucrece, the virtuous and chaste Lucrece, who was this paragon of Roman matronly virtue. Mm -hmm. And it felt like the suicide was a way for her to regain control of her own narrative and to control how people talk about her and think about her when Tarquin has done something that in another situation or, or, or reacted to differently could could have taken that agency away from her right and I mean, it, it, on the one hand i mean obviously it's it's uh tremendously tragic and sad and it's sad not only in what happened to lucrece and what lucrece feels like she must do in some sense it's tragic that this is her main means of righting the wrong that was done to her in some way and that she has to kill herself in her mind to kind of exact justice or set in motion events to achieve justice. Though it's interesting because I think the whole story of Troy makes it magnify out from her just thinking about her personal situation and seeing her personal situation as connected to this broader story of tyranny and error and bad leadership that needs to be rectified or sort of iniquity at the highest level of power. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating and tremendously tragic. But with that note, I think we should talk about the ending of the poem and sort of what happens after she stabs herself. So I'll just give a quick summary of this last section, which is much shorter, by the way, than the other two sections. 
So after Lucrece stabs herself, Collatine argues with Lucrece's father, Lucretius, as both compete over who is more distressed about what has happened. While they argue, another nobleman, Lucius Junius Brutus, steps forward. And for those keeping score at home, this name might sound familiar to you. And indeed, the Marcus Junius Brutus, who is famous for murdering Julius Caesar, claimed descent from this Brutus. According spoiler to, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Coming in a future episode of Bardflies, by the way. Brutus, at least in Shakespeare's telling, has long been viewed as sort of a dissolute loser by the other aristocrats. But he throws off that reputation here and exhorts the Romans to take revenge for Lucrece's sake. Inspired by his example, the Roman noblemen bear Lucrece's body to Rome, raise the people in revolt, and ultimately send the Tarquins into exile. And that leads to the establishment of the Roman Republic. If you want to know how important Shakespeare considers this final denouement, just bear in mind that everything from the transport of Lucrece's body to Rome through the exile of Tarquin is narrated in a grand total of six lines. So clearly not the thing that was most interesting to Shakespeare in this poem. Nonetheless, I do think there's a pretty interesting political subtext, and it kind of rings through, I think, throughout the poem. Uh, and Will, if you'll allow me to just mm-hmm. expound on this for a second. So this is the it, this first comes up, this kind of political f- subtext first comes up when Lucrece is pleading with Tarquin not to carry through on on his, basically his proposed course of action. And she's trying to, she's trying to prevail on him via appealing to his sense of monarchical duty. And she says to him, in Tarquin's likeness I did entertain thee, hast thou put on his shape to do him shame? <laughs> to all the host of heaven I complain me, thou wrongst his honor, wounds his princely name. Thou art not what thou seemst, and if the same, thou seemst not what thou art, a god, a king, for kings like gods should govern everything. <laughs> How will thy name be seated in thine age when thus thy vices bud before thy spring? If in thy hope thou darest do such outrage, what darest thou not when once thou art a king? O oh, be remembered, no outrageous thing from vassal actors can be wiped away, then king's misdeeds cannot be hidden clay. This deed will make thee only loved for fear, but happy monarchs still are feared for love. With foul offenders thou perforce must bear, when they and thee the like offenses prove. If but for fear of this thy will remove, for princes are the glass, the school, the book, where subjects' eyes do learn, do read, Mm. do look. And then later on, afterwards, you know, as she's reflecting in that long monologue, when she's reflecting on what's happened to her, she again returns to this question of monarchy and putting Tarquin's sins in a political context. And she says, why should the private pleasure of someone become the public plague of many mo? In this context, mo meaning more. Let sin alone committed light alone upon his head that hath transgressed so. Let guiltless souls be freed from guilty woe. For one's offense, why should so many fall to plague a private sin in general? Sorry, and this was... This section is talking about, I think, about Helen, not about Tarquin specifically, but going back to, Will, what you were saying about the tapestry. Mm-hmm. So again, there's, you know, there's a sense of, now, obviously, in this particular section, she doesn't address this question of monarchy directly, but it's sort of implied in the sense that the wrongs that are perpetrated by, in this case, a monarch, by, but really by some public figure, you know, I mean, when I, that, that particular section I highlighted will and I wrote in my marginalia I wrote Trump question mark <laughs> so you know there, there's definitely the sense that that the private virtue of a of our public figures does matter both because of the consequences 
that a poorly led private life can lead to, mm-hmm. but also in the example that a king or in our case, a president sets for for their people. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think and I think that sort of having spent the first third of this uh, podcast and the first third of the poem taking a dive into Tarquin's mind, you can see why one would not want somebody like that to be leading Rome. In this yeah, case, I mean, right? it definitely it definitely goes to some of the conversations, Will, that I think we had in the Henry VI plays about honor and virtue and and the public duty of a monarch. Although I think it extends really to any, you know, Shakespeare is dealing with a monarchical system. And so his critique, I think, is aimed at that system. But it mm. could apply, I think, at least this particular critique definitely could apply to any position in a, anyone in a position of political power, right? Or any head of state, really. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think sometimes these actions that we classify as, not that I see this as a private action or private indiscretion, it's a, it's a crime in the, in what Tarquin does to Lucrece. But sometimes people say, oh, you know, what our leaders do in their private lives doesn't matter at all. I actually think in some ways Shakespeare is saying, no, it very much, it very much does. It's an indication of other character flaws that will inevitably manifest themselves in leadership. And I think it's something as personalized as a monarchy that's doubly true in, in yeah, respects. Yeah, I mean, in fact, as we're talking about it, it, it makes me understand, I think, a bit more why you were so drawn to that Troy passage, because I think... If we were just looking, if that if that wasn't there, if that extended talk about the painting of the fall of Troy wasn't there, then I think the conversation about the consequences of Tarquin's action being the fall of his monarchy, it would be much easier to dismiss that as being the individual consequence of this poem. And I think with the with the Troy narrative, it feels like and and what. Lucrece directly says about that narrative, it feels like he is trying to nudge you towards seeing the direct connection of those two and the connection of pri- of the private virtue of rulers with public consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Will, anything else on this? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered Lucrece pretty thoroughly. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming on The Place. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.